The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, Senior Writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us for another timely conversation. As we've all seen in the headlines, inflation and interest rates are rising, and that means mortgage rates and rents are climbing too. So what does this mean for investors? Is now a good time to invest in real estate? If so, which sectors? So to help answer those questions and many more, I'm joined by Jeff Schwaber, CEO of Blue Rock Capital Markets. Now, Blue Rock's total income plus real estate fund has $7.4 billion in assets under management, making it the world's largest real estate interval fund. I'm delighted to have Jeff as my guest today. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you very much, Lauren. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you, Jeff. You know, there's been a lot of discussion this year about the role of alternatives in a portfolio, and real estate, of course, is a real asset. Um, I just came across a study from a Bank of America this morning that found that about 75% of sort of wealthy, younger investors don't expect above average returns just from traditional stocks and bonds. And as a result, 80% of these young investors are turning to alternative investments. So, you know, whether you're a younger investor or an older investor, why is now a compelling time, do you think, to add else to a portfolio, in particular real estate? Yeah, it's a great question, um, Lauren. You know, I think other than inflation and Fed rate hikes and maybe Russia, Ukraine and the pandemic, uh, the most frequently used term in, in finance and investing has been alternatives over the past year and change. Um, if you look at the largest private equity and, and major asset management firms, they're all substantially increasing their presence to alts uh, for the non-correlated benefits of, of, of uh, alternative investments. And it, it, even if you look at the big three Ivy League endowments, which is Harvard, Yale and Princeton, who substantially outperformed the average investor. I think David Swenson, the famed um, late manager of the uh, of the Yale endowment, outperformed by between four and 500 basis points over 30 years and, and had a significant weighting to alts. I think the average, those big three right now are about 18% vested in equities and over 50% in alternatives. So if you look back, what has history shown us? If, if you go back, for example, just to the turn of the century, um, you, 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 there's been three times that the major equity indices have fallen on average about 45 or 50%. It happened first during the dot-com implosion and then secondarily, oh, and then couple that with the uh, terrorist attacks. And then second during the great financial crisis down about 65% and then the COVID flash crash. And, you know, uh, the Dow and the NASDAQ are not more credible places, frankly, to watch, you know, half our money disappear every six, seven years. I'm, I'm not consoled by it, certainly. Um, and now, generally, under those circumstances, we would have a flight to safety to fixed income um, for its, you know, yield protected benefits. And the Barclays Ag is down about 16 and a half percent just in the past year and change. 
And of course, price and yield move in inverse relationships to one another. Rates are rising. So the, the price of those bonds are falling. So where do you go for income and stability and, and something that is decorrelated from the public capital markets and alternative investments, which is generally just alternatives to stocks and bonds, have become very much in favor and have substantially outperformed. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the bond market because really, you know, this year it's been a very tough year for investors. There really has been no place to hide. Um, but when I looked at the total income fund, I actually had to look at it a couple of times to make sure that I was reading correctly. Because if I'm reading the chart correctly, the fund is up 14% year to date, which is pretty remarkable given what a bloodbath it's been out there. And it hasn't had a down year uh, since inception. So tell us a little bit about the fund and, and what makes it so different. And I should mention to, to the audience, if you're wanting to look up the fund, you know, the ticker for the A shares is TIPRX, so T-I-P-R-X. So just tell us a little bit about the fund, uh, Jeff. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, it's a really special fund. You're right. Never a down year. It's up about 25% in the trailing 12. Um, it just paid its 39th consecutive quarterly dividend or distribution at a five and a quarter percent annualized rate. So over and above that growth, it, it pays significant income. And on average, about 63 to 65 percent of that distribution has been tax advantaged because of depreciation. So the overall thesis of Total Income Plus is that um, you know? There's lots of ways to invest in real estate. You can you can buy publicly traded REITs or REIT indices or mutual funds, but then you're correlated to the markets. And and starting back in 1978, an index was created called the Nacreef Property Trust or Na yeah property and 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 the Nacreef and that that index Nacreef is an acronym for the National Council of Real Estate Investment Fiduciaries. And it is the index of private institutional managers and funds. It's, it's literally an elite dream team of the most prestigious private institutional funds that's you know, measured in the trillions of funds like Morgan Stanley Prime and Blackstone Property Partners and Clarion Lyons famed industrial funds, et cetera. And for 44 years, um, retail investors have been locked out of what is arguably the highest quality class A institutional real estate that has very low correlation, much more stable and higher risk adjusted returns. And the minimum investment in any one of these funds is five or 10 million. And even if you had it, they wouldn't take it. And Blue Rock cracked the code and gained access to this in an actively managed multi-manager, multi-strategy, multi-sector fund about 10 years ago. And, and, and we're invested that 7.4 billion has exposure to about $385 billion worth of real estate assets, mainly equity and a little bit of debt. And as you said, in 10 years, it hasn't had a, uh, a down year. And uh, one other distinction is there's about 7,000, 7,000 mutual funds, uh, open, closed and exchange traded funds on uh, in the entire Morningstar universe. That's everything. That's equities, the nine box, fixed income, gubbies, real estate, specialty sector, everything. And Blue Rock's Total Income Plus Real Estate Fund literally has the single highest risk-adjusted return or sharp ratio of all six or 7,000 funds in the one, three, five, and 10-year period. So only one fund gets to make that claim, and, and we're very proud of that. That's amazing. So just in case the audience is not familiar with, with the term interval fund, now the fund is an interval fund, just explain to us how that is different from uh, other funds. 
Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, so interval funds are mutual funds, um, and they're governed under the 1940 Act, and there are substantial procedural, um, you know, it's registered as an investment company with the SEC, uh, just like any other open-ended mutual fund that you're familiar with. It has a five-letter ticker symbol uh, and multiple share classes. So you have an A share that you said, which is a brokerage class. There's an, there's an advisory or, or no-load institutional class, uh, C shares, et cetera. It reprices or what we call marks to market every single day. You can put it up on Yahoo Finance or whatever quote system you, you have and see that. The only difference, the interval, means that it doesn't have daily liquidity. It has interval liquidity, which is quarterly. And we are required by the SEC to um, to honor our minimum level of liquidity. We can't shut it off if we feel it's in the best interest of the shareholders. Um, and the reason for, for the interval fund structure is, frankly, we couldn't have recreated the stability that is total income plus in the open-ended structure because open-ended mutual funds um, are limited to having no more than 15% of their assets in what are deemed illiquid securities. And that sounds like a scary word. It's not. Illiquid just means you can't turn on, you know, open up your your Schwab or TD Ameritrade account and click sell and it's gone or call your financial advisor and say, sell my thousand shares of, you know, General Electric and it's gone. That's that's their definition of liquidity. So that's a brief overview of, of an interval fund. Great, thank you. I just want to also remind the audience that if you do have questions uh, for Jeff, please do submit them during the Q&A feature. I'll be sure to leave some time at the end uh, for the audience Q&A. So, you know, Jeff, real estate is a very broad umbrella and it's easy to shove lots of different things underneath there. But from your perspective, when you talk about investing in real estate, um, mm -hmm. what are the sectors that fall under the umbrella for you? Yeah, that's a really, really smart way to tee that up, Lauren. Um, you're right. You, you can't, you know, what I, one mistake that I see even sophisticated investors and financial advisors make is, is they, they take something as broad and diverse as, as real estate and, and try and throw a blanket over it and make generalizations. There's so many ways to invest in real estate. You can, you know, you can buy it directly, uh, as we say, and, and then you have the three T's, the, the tenants, taxes and toilets. Um, you can buy publicly traded real estate. There are limited partnerships, et cetera. Um, and then there are, you know, professionally and actively managed funds. And, and that's where, that's where we come into play. So when you think about commercial real estate, the, the four or five major food groups or asset classes, what we call sectors in real estate are office, uh, industrial and and industrial itself has a multitude of variations. There's last mile distribution. There's there's light manufacturing and warehousing. Office tech, office flex, office service center, office showroom. There's so many different variations. There's multifamily. Although that sounds like a residential asset class, fancy way of saying apartments. Um, it is indeed a commercial asset class. And there's you know high rises in in major metropolitan MSAs. There's 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 garden, there's, you know, mid rise, there's uh, single family rentals, et cetera. So, again, highly diverse. And what did I say? Office industrial. Oh, there's retail. And that comes in a multitude of forms, malls, strip centers, et cetera. And then a fifth one is hospitality, which is a great sector, but it's the most binary of all of them. Hospitality, fancy way of saying hotels and resorts. Um, it could be extended stay all the way to luxury. Um, but it's really based on consumer and corporate discretionary spending. So 
Um, it, it's rather binary during disrupted uh, market times. And then aside from those five major food groups, there are specialty sectors like life sciences and, and healthcare related real estate, um, storage, and several others. So that's a kind of a bit of an overview, if you will, of, of, of real estate and that, you know, sort of blanket that you just can't throw over it and make generalizations. So, you know, within those sectors, uh, where at the moment is your, your highest conviction and why? Yeah, it's, that's, a, that's another good question. Yeah. So to answer the, the question first directly, our highest conviction sectors are industrial, and that's our heaviest weighting. And I'll review that momentarily, which has led um, for the last several years, and we anticipate will continue to for some reasons that I'll share. Uh, multifamily multifamily um, residential real estate, especially in a rising rate environment where home ownership has um, uh, is getting more difficult, uh, generally outside of the mass affluent and the wealthy investor um, who buy all cash, people contemplate monthly payment much more than they do purchase price. And as rates go up, you buy less house. Um, and then, of course, you have you have taxes and insurance and capex capital expenditures for your roof and 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 all of those items which you avoid in in multifamily uh, rentals and then of course there's the life sciences sector which you know broadly speaking that's an umbrella term for real estate that's designed and built to facilitate the advancement of, of you know medicine and, and healthcare so the, the market spans industries like pharmaceuticals and medical device companies biotech genomics uh, and many more. So those are our three highest conviction sectors. Um, and interestingly, during during the pandemic, um, we we tilted. That's a, a term. We 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 weighted towards those substantially, and deweighted towards our low conviction sectors, which were office and retail. So you know the world shut down in in a, in a bizarre, never before happened way and you know we didn't leave our houses for six months and we were wiping down our groceries and restaurants and retail closed and 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 people were were working from home so office suffered and one of the big benefits of blue rock total income plus is our malleability if you will to rebalance and do so rather rapidly we took our you know if you if you pictured the four major food groups of office industrial retail and and multifamily, we don't invest in 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 uh, the hospitality sector in this fund. Um, and let's just say you were equal weighted twenty five percent in each. That's kind of fantasy land, but just indulge me if you will. We were able to take our our retail exposure down to like two or three percent uh, very quickly because we don't we don't go out and have huge we don't have huge acquisition teams where we own, you know. 100 billion or 50 billion dollars worth of retail or office assets. We are sort of a fund of funds, a fund of managers. So we were able to reduce our weightings. You know, the managers that that own the bricks and sticks have to go out there and have dispositions. They have to sell. If you want to, you know, de-weight that, you have to sell and it's likely the worst time to do it. So we had a, a big advantage and we and we tilted heavily towards industrial. Industrial was up over 43% last year if you can believe that. Wow. Um, and I mean, that's an important uh, distinction about your fund is that you're not actually holding the physical real estate and that gives you the ability to pivot so easily. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, we're invested in about 35 of those elite private institutional managers and their funds. That's what comprises that 380 some billion of real estate or, or, or close to that. We have we have some debt and minimal public market securities. But, 
yeah, it's it's a big distinction. That malleability is was and 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 frankly, we outperform. We had the highest performance, the highest uh, the lowest standard deviation. For those of your your listeners who are familiar with the term standard deviation, um, that's a measurement of risk and volatility. Um, and it basically states after you have a you know five year operating history, what um, you know what percentage up or down under certain stress circumstances your your investments w- would be. So the standard deviation of public stocks right now is in the low twenties, about twenty two. So there's a sixty seven percent probability you'd operate within one standard deviation. So yeah, you could be down twenty two percent from your five year return average. More radical is a two standard deviation. That happens about 95% of the time. And heaven forbid, a three standard deviation event is, is cataclysmic. But, um, and the, the standard deviation of this fund is like 1.6 something. Mm-hmm. So it has, you know, one thirteenth the, the volatility of the equity markets and significant outperformance. So to shield our investors from that volatility is important. I mean, I think we were down one and change percent. Uh, during the pandemic, when equities fell 38%, and then the fund just ran about 46% from uh, 2000 to, to present. So, Jeff, you mentioned those high conviction sectors, so industrial, multifamily, life sciences. I'd love to spend just a, a few minutes on each of those uh, and sort of to understand why those are yeah. high conviction sectors and whether you continue to see, I guess, the outlook um, to stay at a high conviction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The devil's always in the details. I agree. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, so right now, the industrial real estate sector has tailwinds that I frankly am not eloquent enough to properly express. Um, it the the asking rents generally for real estate. If you're if you're a landlord or a building owner or you're invested in a fund, you know normally you're increasing your rents by you know something close to the consumer price index, which although is escalated right now in a you know state of not even hyper superinflation, it's like uber inflation. We um, are are asking you know generally it's you know it's about two and a half three percent. That's a good rental escalation. Um, average rents right now for the industrial space are are bumping by about twelve percent per year. As a matter of fact, the largest one of the largest industrial players and and the largest holding in total income plus as a fund is Prologis. And they came out and revised their 2023 uh, rental increases from 12 to 22 percent. That's 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 absurd. Um, and 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 the tailwinds, as I said, are are undeniable. You're you're at about a 97 percent occupancy, which is a, the lowest, the highest of all time. You know, three percent vacancies. Um, you've had 40, um, 40. Uh, five consecutive quarters of positive net absorption, meaning people, you know, flowing into them. And, and it's really driven by light manufacturing, warehousing, and really the explosive growth of e-commerce. Um, so we all have, you know, three Amazon packages on our, on our doorstep, it seems, uh, every day. And we've seen, um, we, it's projected to have about 78% growth in e-commerce between now and 2030. Um, so some factoids in that regard, um, that's an urban last mile delivery. So last mile distribution has become, we, our expectation is to order something and it to be there in a day or two, not, not in a week or so. Um, and you generally get about 20 to 50% higher rents in last mile industrial real estate. Um, Per Green Street, which is pretty much the most respected real estate investment bank, 
out there. Um, for every 1.2, I'm sorry, for every $1 billion of e-commerce sales forward, we need an additional 1.2 million square feet. Um, and we're expected to have about $830 plus billion in e-commerce growth just between now and 2026. That means we need over a billion square feet. And Lauren, you, you can't build it that fast. You mm -hmm. simply cannot. It's economics 101. When you cannot increase supply um, sufficient to satisfy demand, prices go up. It's a landlord's market. You can pretty much charge whatever you want because let's face it, your real estate under these circumstances is your is your most significant operational critical mission critical asset if you don't have that you're you're out of business so the, the tailwinds for industrial are, are just simply undeniable and um and we tilted towards that all the way back in 2000 and, and you know 16 i think and um and much to the you know substantial net benefit of our shareholders um you want to talk a little bit about life sciences in the same regard um, sure, and multifamily, and maybe we'll just do it fairly briefly. Uh, the questions are rolling in, so oh, I want to okay, make sure. sure I leave time for for uh, audience questions. But just briefly touch on, I guess, why life sciences and multifamily are also high conviction, and then we'll go on to the audience questions. Yeah, I think I'll leave my previous remarks about multifamily, which were which were rather um, you know thirty thousand feet um, stand. It's just there's you know that when you look at the demographics you had, you know, it started with the baby boomers, which would be me born between 1946 and 1964. And then there were the echo boomers and then the gen Xers. I can't even track them anymore than the millennials. It's, you know, it's a quarter of a, 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 a billion or 300 million people. And there's, again, just simply not enough um, space right now or the ability um, to build, especially with escalated commodity prices, the cost of lumber and labor and concrete and you know steel etc are just sort of through the roof so there's a significant barrier to entry and you know life sciences is has a significant barrier to entry because you have uh, you know just just highly altered you know uh, space considerations you have to take care of hazardous waste and and floor strength and you know ceiling heights and hvac requirements and mechanical systems so it's hard to generate that suitable space and um, the growth in, in the market, life sciences increased about 62% over the previous year. And the need for novel therapeutics and people are living longer. And those 300 million people are looking for, obviously, solutions to, um, to you know, pandemic situations as well as just daily um, well-being. And, um, and a the most institutional players are flocking towards life sciences. And we were an early entrant. Great. Uh, I'm going to switch over now to the audience questions, Jeff. And the first one comes in from Richard, who says, Jeff Schreiber and I have been friendly for over 50 years since we both oh grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. I'd like I... to get Jeff's opinion on senior living REITs. <laughs> I think I know who that is. Uh, if, if you're on, Richard, uh, uh, I'd love to, to, to catch up and, and all the best to your family. Um, senior living. Yeah. So I actually have a lot of experience here. I, uh, I previously was the president and head of capital markets for one of the largest, uh, healthcare uh, REITs probably raised about five, $6 billion in just equity. And, and when you think of healthcare, real estate, um, clinical healthcare, real estate, that's where the patient is seen and treated. There's four major food groups. There are hospitals, medical office buildings, uh, senior, uh, uh, or assisted living and skilled nursing. 
So generally, healthcare real estate was its own little fiefdom, and and it had it generally traded at a pretty substantial premium to its net asset value, which is good. If you had a five billion dollar net asset value and it was trading at a twenty percent premium, you could you know sell the reader or trade on the exchange at worth six billion of equity. Um, some reach trade at historic discounts. Some are flat to nav. This is at a premium, but but senior living really got hit during the pandemic. So, you know, if you if you take the Buffett approach and, and you want to be greedy when everybody else is fearful, it's probably a great time to enter because invariably it will revert to the norm as the world normalizes. But um, where medical office, which has higher cap rates and therefore higher income and some others have been in vogue now, uh, senior living and assisted living really got whacked during the pandemic. But um, I think there's for a, for the vulture investor. Um, it's probably a pretty good time to go and, and enter that space. Great. So Kia has a question. Uh, it is said that returns for financial advisors in the top quartile compared to the lower quartile for alternative investments is approximately 2,000 basis points. If this is the case, how do you find the right financial advisor and what investment opportunities can one seek to enable these returns? Yeah. Wow. I love that question. Very smart question. Yeah. So 2000 basis points, folks, is 20%. And she brings up a great point because if you look at the delta between the top and bottom quartile for equities, you know, everything's index based. If you're buying a large cap blend fund, which is, you know, kind of the S&P 500, it's kind of commoditized. You know, you're either going to be right on the index or 96% underperform the index because of fees but you have a one or 2% delta. Alternatives give the ability for a great asset manager to significantly outperform and generate what we call alpha. That's excess returns over and above the norm or the bottom quartile. And how do you find that in a, in a, in a financial advisor? Well, you know what? I, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's in the interview process. You need to have them substantiate uh, not just you know, in bull markets, you know, it's, it's great when the sunglasses are out, but what happens when the umbrellas come out, right? So to, you have to interview that advisor and, and show their returns. You want to see, you know, mock statements. You can blank out people's names and, and social security numbers, et cetera, and see how they've performed. And not just on a blanket basis, the main asset classes of, of alternatives are, are generally real estate and credit. Or debt. Yes, there's timber and there's managed futures and there's, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure and, and so many others and private equity, et cetera. But look at the, the larger ones and substantiate their performance and their returns and then ask them questions with how they position as we're, you know, in this, you know, sort of altered state of, of, of rising interest rates for the first time in, in a couple different decades. Um, You'll never hit the dead center of the bullseye, but you'll be, you know, in that 50 or 100 spot and, and, and likely outperform. Great. So we've got about four more questions and we're almost at time. We'll go a little bit over. So this might be sort of a lightning round of questions for the last Okay, four. I'll go. So yep. Alan asks, what's your outlook for apartments and single family rental market in a one to two year horizon? Bullish. Uh, as a matter of fact, Blue Rock, we just we had sold our public REIT, Blue Rock Residential Growth REIT, to Blackstone, an affiliate of Blackstone, for about $3.6 billion, uh, generating the largest total shareholder return of any public REIT for the last one, two, and three-year periods. And and But we retained our single-family rental assets. We have about 4,000 of them, and that listed on the New York 
stock exchange, the NYSE American, under the symbol BHM, that's Blue Rock Homes Trust. And while this market is so disrupted, it came out about 20 bucks. I think it's about 24 or 25. It's actually up 20, you know, three, four, five percent. And it just listed a couple few weeks ago in a spinoff. So to answer your question, bullish on multifamily, extremely bullish on single family rentals. Great. So Terry says, please comment on valuations since many alts are illiquid and private equity type of investments tend to lag in mark to market. So for example, while breach which is B-R-E-I-T, seems an excellent investment. How real are valuations? Yeah, that's B-REIT. That's Blackstone's uh, non-traded REIT. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Listen, the methodology for mark-to-market and valuations was developed by Green Street and, and formerly PricewaterhouseCoopers and you know CalPERS and CalSTRS and Texas Teachers and the Harvard Endowment, all the mega pensions invest in this. And you know, years and years ago, decades, they were scrutinized for, for having that not being a spot market or even a forward looking indicator, but being lagging and, you know, escalated circumstance um, procedures have been put in place and we believe it to be um, to have high efficacy with regard to, you know, present mark valuations. So two more questions and Hell says, what's the underlying churn of your property investments? What's the frequency of turnover? Yeah, well, remember we're, we are, we are a, um, a fund of managers with, with thousands of, of what arguably the highest quality real estate across multiple sectors by these managers and invested in about 380 billion, as I said, of real estate security. So it's pretty low. I mean, there's really no wood to chop in our portfolio. It's a, it's, you know, the portfolio is 94 and 95% least. It's a, you know, in the hundreds of billions, very low levered about 29% right now, not 50, 60, 70. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the assets tend to, you know, slowly and steadily appreciate and meter beat inflation over time. So very low. And, um, you know, this, this is all 1099. So you just get, get that tax reporting document handed to your accountant. And it generally, it just continually reduces your basis with the distributions, which would, um, come back as long-term capital gains upon disposition. So Frank asked to check the symbol. He says, is the symbol uh, T-I-P-R-X correct? And, and that is correct. But he asks, is there any research available on this fund? Yeah, you would have to just, you know, Google around and do some digging. We don't, we don't offer this direct to investors. It's available through, I mean, I think we have a couple hundred independent financial planning broker-dealer firms from LPL and Satera and Cambridge, all the big ones, all the way down. Uh, Morgan Stanley, R.W. Baird. Uh, several hundred RIAs. You can buy it through TD if you have an institutional account there. Um, and the no load or the advisory based class is TIPWX if you are interested. But whole host of information on our website and, and in uh, peripheral sites as well. Well, Jeff, it's been terrific chatting with you today. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Jeff, for joining me today. Uh, we hope you can join us again tomorrow. Market Watch's Gillian Berman and Leslie Albrecht will have a discussion on the latest in student loan news. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a wonderful day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.